Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Well, let's pray. (laughs) Father, in the last hymn, we sang, Speak to us, Lord, and then Ezra 2. And so we ask you to speak to us uh, in what might appear to be a quite obscure Would you speak to us very plainly? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I I love reading Christian biographies. I find them inspiring. It's inspiring to read how the Lord has worked among his people in years gone by. It's inspiring to read of individuals who've given themselves wholeheartedly in the Lord's service and to see then how the Lord has used them. So I commend Christian biographies to you, but there's one nagging concern for me whenever I read a biography of a great leader of the past, and it is this. Any biography is inevitably about one person, obviously, you say. Now, there is no question in my mind that God uses individuals. History has shown what a difference one person can make in God's service. I love the words often attributed to D.L. Moody, the 19th century American evangelist, He said, the world has yet to see what God can do with a man fully consecrated to him. And Moody apparently continued, by God's help, I aim to be that man. Yes, God can and does powerfully use individuals who are wholeheartedly devoted to Jesus Christ. Indeed, later in the book of Ezra, we see how important one man, Ezra himself, was to bringing about a remarkable transformation among the people of Judah. But for God's church to experience a reformation, it's never just the work of one man. And we see that very clearly here in Ezra chapter 2. Last week we saw in chapter 1 how God moved hearts so that his people could move to Babylon, to Jerusalem, to rebuild uh, the temple. Chapter 1, verse 1, God moved in the heart of King Cyrus, the king of Persia, an unbeliever, to create a mandate for the people of Judah to move up from Babylon to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And then in chapter 1, verse 5, God moved in the hearts of his people so that they prepared to make that move. Now, chapter 2 is that movement. It is a list of all the people who went from Babylon to Jerusalem in order to rebuild the temple. And that's all we read, chapter 2, verse 1. Now, these are the people of the province who came up from the captivity of the exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken captive to Babylon. And then for the next 60 verses, we get a list of all who went. We've just heard it. At at first glance, it's about as interesting to read as the telephone directory, about as enthralling a way to pass the time as watching paint dry until you think about it. First, look at the sheer numbers of people who travel from Babylon to Jerusalem. We get it at the end. Uh, Look at verses 64 to 67. The whole company numbered 42,360 besides their 7,337 men servants and maid servants and they had 200 men and women singers as well. That is quite a migration. It amounts to one-tenth of the population of Sheffield moving out of the city en masse in one day. Now, for months and months now, we've seen news footage of those displaced from Syria and other parts of the world arriving in Greece and Turkey in an attempt to make their way through Europe. Now, with those television images firmly etched in our minds, it's not difficult to imagine what this exodus from Babylon to Jerusalem would have looked like. 
Except here in chapter 2 of Ezra, the people of Judah were travelling from a safe haven. They were moving from a well-established, secure home in Babylon and travelling to somewhere that looked like a bombsite. They were going to a place that was in ruins. Yes, they were returning home, but they were returning to piles of rubble. They were returning to embark upon months and months of hard work, hard manual labour to rebuild the temple. This was really tough. The task ahead was colossal, and so it necessitated huge numbers. 42,360 people plus 7,337 servants, to be precise. And they went because God moved in their hearts, chapter 1, verse 5. They understood the importance of the task of rebuilding the temple. The temple, remember, was the place where God could be met through sacrifice. Remember that phrase that we're going to keep using through the book of Ezra, the place where God could be met through sacrifice. And we thought last week what that means for us today. There is no physical temple today for Jesus Christ is the temple. He said that himself in John chapter 2. So today we don't meet God in a building, but in the man Christ Jesus. Because of Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross that we'll be remembering as we take communion. Because of that death on the cross through sacrifice, we can be reconciled to God. Jesus is where we meet God through sacrifice. Jesus is always the primary understanding of the temple for the Christian today. But as we considered last week, the people of God, Christ's church, are also the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells among his people, a people uh, that God is building to be a spiritual house, to use the language of 1 Peter chapter 2. A spiritual house where God can be known. And that is the building work that continues today. Building the church, not a construction of bricks and mortar, but building the people of God, growing the church numerically, growing spiritually so that we can become increasingly the people we should be. Growing a people where others can come to meet Jesus Christ as we proclaim his sacrificial death on the cross. Now that building project is a huge task and no one man or woman is going to achieve it. Oh, for sure, God will use leaders to inspire God's people, but it will take hundreds and thousands of God's people moved by God in their hearts to be about that work. It takes a mighty work of God in the hearts of many people for the church to be reformed. That's what's happening here in Ezra chapter 2. So when we think of the church being reformed, We need to pray for the Lord to work in the hearts of hundreds and thousands of his people who will then make building the church a priority above everything else. Oh, clearly there are leaders here. Again, chapter uh, chapter 2 and verse 2. Zerubbabel, Joshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Reliah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mizpah, Bigvi, Rahum and Baanar. And along with those named in verse 2, in verses 36 to 39, priests are listed. The priests are those who had worked full-time in the temple once it was rebuilt and operational. So yes, having good, strong, purposeful leadership is crucial in rebuilding the church. Without good leadership, the church won't be built. But if we get our calculators out and add up the numbers here, we see the priests only add up to an approximately a tenth of the total. There are many, many, many more who returned to Jerusalem who had no obvious leadership role. 
You can't read this chapter thoughtfully without seeing that there are hundreds of what we might call ordinary people heading off to Jerusalem to build the temple. Quite simply, without what is often called the laity, it's not a phrase I particularly like, but what we often call the laity, quite simply without them, the church won't be built and reformed. I think of churches in Britain today that have grown in the last 50, 60, 70 years to become strong bastions of Bible truth. I'm thinking of churches that have been turned around from you know, years ago, having little more than a few old ladies and a dog in the congregation on a Sunday, to today bursting at the seams and having an influence right across the nation. When I think of those churches, I often think of one named leader, a strong Bible teacher who under God the church has grown. When we look carefully into the events that led to that growth, we discover that there are many, many others besides the leader working hard to bring about the the growth of that church. I think in one large church in London, even before the now famous preacher was appointed, a group of Christian businessmen prayed for a good Bible teacher to lead the church in that influential part of the city. And then they searched for the right man who at the time was not well known at all. And then after that, he was appointed and they they worked in ways to support him, enabling him to get on with the work of preaching and praying. They gave money to help the work grow. Uh, The point is, leaders can't grow the church on their own. And we see that very clearly in Ezra chapter 2 when it came to rebuilding the temple. So I've been challenged as I've studied this chapter to expand my praying. As I've prayed for the church to be reformed in this land, I've asked the Lord to provide us with many great Bible teaching leaders. That's often been my prayer down through the years. And we do need to pray for that. But this chapter has extended my thinking, showing me that if we're going to see reformation in the church in this land, we need God to work in the hearts of many people, not just leaders, but many people who will make building God's church a priority above everything else. See, that's what we see from the big sweep of chapter two of Ezra. But the details are also hugely informative. Look with me first at the priests listed in verses 36 to 39. There are four clans of priests named. They add up to nearly 4,300 people. And it is a huge number of priests. The uh, excellent uh, Bible teacher, Dale Ralph Davis, asked the question, why so many And then he answers his own question. Bible teachers like to do that, ask a question that they've already got the answer to. And he answers the question like this. Doubtless because they longed to serve at the altar in a restored temple, which they could not do in exile. Their desire was to rebuild the altar and the temple, to restore the public worship of God so they could serve where they were meant to serve. Isn't that very helpful? And a gentle challenge to us to have the same desire to serve the Lord with the gifts and talents we've been given. Look at the lengths they went to. 4,300 of them saying, we're going back to Jerusalem to build the temple so that we can use the gifts we've got. I think the Lord often gives us a longing to use our gifts in his service. And it is that longing that often drives us to go to extraordinary lengths to make remarkable sacrifices and work incredibly hard to see the church built up. That's what we see in these priests. And then after the priests, there's the Levites, verse 40. Just 74 of them returned to Jerusalem. Nowhere near the number of priests. The Levites probably assisted the priests. So let's do the math, as the Americans say. I prefer let's do the maths 
I'm sure that's the right way to say it. But anyway, let's do the math. And it works out at a ratio of one Levite to every 58 priests. With so few of them, they knew there'd be tons of work for them to do. But these 74 were prepared to go and do the work. And I see that same servant heartedness and even more as I look down the list at the temple servants and the servants of Solomon in verses 43 to 58. Verse 58 tells us there was 392 of them. Now the temple servants assisted the Levites. We know that from Ezra chapter 8 verse 20. So really what this is saying is they did the most menial tasks around the temple. So you see you've got the priests and then you've got the priests being served by the Levites and the Levites being served by the servants. I reckon it's the Levites and these servants who in my book are the great heroes here. We don't know their names, not like verse 2 where we've got some names, don't know their names, just the families they came from. Everything they did was out of public view, but there they were, prepared to do the most ordinary, menial task behind the scenes. They weren't after status or recognition. They weren't out to promote themselves or push themselves forward. They were just happy to serve. The church, church can't survive without people like that. The church certainly won't be reformed to be what it should be without people like that. Indeed, people like that model what everyone in the church should be like, including leaders. Because the leader of the church, the Lord Jesus, is a servant. We'll be reminded of that as we take communion today. The one who had all authority in heaven and on earth, the most powerful person in the universe, the son of man, as he called himself, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It is through Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross that the church is born. And it is in following that example of sacrificial service that the church grows Wonderfully, there are hundreds of people like that here at Christ Church Forward. I rejoice in you all because the church will never see a reformation without that kind of servant-heartedness. If you are one of those who simply gets on with the work behind the scenes, doing ordinary, what appeared to be very mundane tasks, today I give thanks to God for you. The church will not be built without people like you. That's what we see in the Levites and in the servants. Now, before we move on from the servants, there's something else to spot from that list. A guy called Edwin Yamuchi, I can't even say his name, Yamuchi, says that 68% of the names listed in verses 43 to 59 are of foreign origin. So it's likely that two-thirds of these people listed as servants were descendants of those who were taken captive as prisoners of war, probably during King David's reign, and then taken captive as prisoners of war, they were pressed into slavery. But now, here they are years later, listed among God's people. Here's the probable scenario. People from other countries, captured in war years, pressed into service around the temple, then they heard about the one true God. In the temple, they were in the place where God could be met through sacrifice. And somewhere in the process, they embraced the truth for themselves. They became followers of the Lord. And now, of their own free will, they wanted to serve him. That is often the kind of thing that happens. Circumstances occur. 
terrible circumstances and we find ourselves plunged into a devastating situation a sort of situation we'd have never chosen for ourselves but it turns out to be the very thing that puts us into contact with Christians or the very thing that makes us open to hearing the gospel I think of one woman we'll call her Debbie in her own words life had been easy for her she had two beautiful girls She lived in a substantial house in a very pleasant part of the country with no real financial worries. And then everything changed. She discovered her husband had been unfaithful. And if that wasn't devastating enough, within weeks she was diagnosed with significant health problems. It was a dreadful time for her. She'd have never chosen it. But it was precisely through those circumstances that she met Christians. She had no previous connection with Christianity, no Sunday school, nothing. But she met some Christians and when one of them invited her to church, out of desperation she accepted the invitation. And there she met people who cared for her and in time she heard the gospel. And then months later she turned to the Lord and he became everything to her. And now years later it's wonderful to watch her as her priority is to see God's church built and others in her family as well. Now, among the list of servants here in verses 43 to 58, then, there'd have been wonderful stories like that. Many of these people with foreign names came from right outside God's family, probably brought in through war. Here were stories of real people who were far from God, being brought to him through the most tragic circumstances. And now, years later, whole families had turned to the Lord And now God had moved in their hearts and they were so committed to him that they put the Lord and his kingdom first and wanted to serve him in building the temple. Great stories of people being brought into God's family. And then as we continue down the list, there are complexities. In verses 59 to 63, there are a bunch of people who, end of verse 59, could not show that their families were descended from Israel. And then look at verse 62. These searched for their family records, but they could not find them, and so were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor ordered them not to eat any of the most sacred food until there was a priest ministering with the Urim and Thummim. Here were people who wanted to serve as priests, but there was a question mark over their family line. And the crucial thing here is to realise that God's word was very clear that only those descended from the tribe of Levi could serve as priests. So you see, this is really instructive. As, God's people moved, as God moved his people towards reformation, we see a serious commitment to obey God's word. And in this case, to follow God's way of sacrifice. What does that mean for us? Well, the Old Testament priesthood is always in the first instance fulfilled in the New Testament in Christ. He is the only one who can stand between God and people. He is the only one who can offer the one true sacrifice for sin. So here is a reminder for us that reformation, for reformation to occur in the church, the priestly sacrificial work of Christ must not be bypassed or substituted for anything else. Well, there we have it, verse 64, over 42,000 people of Judah, more than 7,000 servants, 200 in the choir. Oh, that is important, that points us back to verse 41 and the singers, because in reforming his people, God wants a people who praise him. 
But here in verses 64 to 67, we have thousands of people, not to mention the horses and mules and camels and donkeys, all traveling from Babylon to Jerusalem. And then verse 68, when they arrived at the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, some of the heads of the families gave free will offerings towards the rebuilding of the house of God on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury for this work 61,000 drachmas of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priestly garments. What a remarkable financial response. The gold they gave weighed 1,133 pounds. At today's rate, that's worth a staggering 15 million pounds. That doesn't even include the silver, which I reckon was worth even more than that. Here they were, putting their money where their mouth was, putting their hands in their pockets and showing just how committed they were to rebuilding the temple. As we draw to a close, two expressions that I love here. The first comes in verse 68. They gave free will offerings. They didn't give out of duty. They, were just, they weren't just keeping the law. They weren't just giving what they were told to give. This was freely given. They just wanted to give. They were so thankful that they gave. What a moment this must have been for them. 70 years earlier, the nation had been thrust into exile, pushed into Babylon. Most of them, 70 years later, had never seen Jerusalem. Now here they were as a nation back in Jerusalem and they were so thankful they showed it in their giving. That happens when God works in the heart of his people. And then look at verse 69. They gave according to their ability. Some were able to give substantial contributions. Others, in worldly terms, very little. But as they all gave what they could, it all added up to a staggering amount of money. I'll take this whole chapter then together and you are left in no doubt that these people made the building of God's temple their priority. They were prepared to move from comfortable Babylon to return to what looked like a bombsite. They were prepared for months of hard work. They were prepared to serve using the gifts and abilities that God had given. Many of them serving in ways that would bring them no recognition or status. They were committed to God's word. And they were prepared to give vast sums of money to see the temple built. Read biographies, and I do encourage you to do that, and you will be inspired. Inspired by individual great leaders who've been moved by God and given themselves in his service. Read biographies, and you'll see how much God can do through just one person who's ready to give themselves wholeheartedly for Christ. But the church is never reformed through the work of just one great leader. The book of Ezra is the story not of just one man, but of the reformation of a whole people, of God working in the hearts of thousands of people. Chapter 2 shows that. Here are people with a passion for the temple, people who have a passion to meet God through sacrifice. Many won't ever be in leadership. Most aren't named. Many if, uh, of them don't care if they're recognised. They just want to serve. Many are ready to serve by doing the most menial tasks. Some have amazing stories of how God brought them to know him. In a sentence, here are the stories of ordinary people living ordinary lives, doing what appeared to be the most ordinary things, but who together achieved the most extraordinary results. 
Let's pray together. As we sang that hymn, Lord, we prayed, speak to me. And then Ezra chapter two. And we thank you that in this remarkable list of numbers and names, you speak to us. We thank you for this astonishing movement of your people. We thank you that so many responded. And as we think of the need in this land for the church to be reformed, we would pray not just for you to cast out some leaders into your harvest field, but that you would cast out many people, hundreds, thousands, who would make rebuilding the church their priority. We ask to begin with us, and that you'd help us, whatever the gifts you've given us, to use them uh, in your service wholeheartedly giving ourselves, our time, our talents, yes, our money, that we may see the same sort of thing happening in Sheffield and dare we even pray in Britain today, a great reformation and may it all be to your praise and glory. Amen.